Thank you for listening to the Road to Nashville podcast, part of the Penalty Box Radio Network. I'm your host, Michael Gallagher. Cutler Klein is finally back from his, his travels. Seems like he's he hasn't been on a podcast in, what, almost, what, two, three months? <laughs> something like that. Something ridiculous like that. But I'm glad to be back finally, finally settled back in Nashville for at least the next few months. And we're, we're, it's a great time for uh, for Preds prospect talk. We just had the World Junior Championships that uh, that just ended. Um, we're fortunate enough to be joined by Stephen Ellis today. He is the founder and editor of World Hockey Magazine. Um, he has a lot of great insight about a lot of the Preds prospects that were up there. So Stephen, uh, jump right into this. Just your overall assessments of the World Junior Championships. What are your, some takeaways? Some players that stood out? Just some overall, just what you saw up there. Well, honestly, uh, I, I think that. Out of all the World Juniors I've seen, that one won't rank as one of the more interesting tournaments because, um, you know, in this tournament, one of the things that makes it so great is that there will be enough bad hockey in the tournament to kind of see some upsets and see some teams um, kind of shine through. And honestly, we didn't really see that. Like, sure, we saw Switzerland. Um, we beat Sweden, but it, like Sweden at this point got really a big shock when Sweden can't seem to ever win the gold medal anymore. And uh, otherwise, we didn't really see any upsets. Uh, we kind of saw one of the most disappointing teams we've seen in a long time in Denmark, which they weren't the lowest scoring team in the last 20 years, but they were near to one of the lowest scoring teams in the last 20 years. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, like uh, I think that overall, it was just kind of just an average tournament. Um, a couple of close games and um, not a whole lot of memorable ones. Of course, there was that comeback by the Americans against uh, Sweden for easily one of the best uh, periods we've seen at the World Juniors. But if you watch the first two periods of that game, it was a pretty dull game up until uh, Ryan Paling basically changed the whole thing. So overall, I wouldn't say it was a great tournament. Um, but, you know, it's still good hockey, and uh, a lot of teams are going to be happy with their prospects. Um, unless you're uh, an Anaheim Ducks fan, a lot of people weren't happy at Maxine Contour after the tournament. But uh, otherwise, yeah, no, it was, again, not, not, not the most exciting tournament, but still a decent tournament overall. And yeah, Stephen, I wanted to get your thoughts on, on Team Canada's overall performance in this one. Obviously, disappointing hosting and not even <laughs> getting to the medal round. I mean, what are your overall thoughts on the way they performed? And this kind of incredible, I would I would say, overreaction, this ridiculous kind of overreaction to, to the way that tournament ended for them. Oh, absolutely. No question. I think that's the case anytime Canada doesn't win. Uh, a lot of people are saying this was Team Canada's worst roster pretty much ever in the history of this tournament. Um, statistically, that's not true. They actually had a very strong uh, tournament in terms of uh, goals for and goals against. And uh, uh, a part of that, yes, 14-0 against Denmark, who basically showed no speed throughout the tournament. But uh, for Canada, like, let's not forget that in the quarterfinal game that they lost to the eventual champions, they were winning with 46 seconds left of the game. And all of a sudden, the fluke goal changed the whole course of that, basically the rest of the tournament for them. And yeah, sure, they kind of slowed down at points against Russia, but the Russians were a fast team and made them pay. And there's nothing wrong with getting outplayed by another strong team. And in the end, Russia came third place, so obviously they were a strong team. But, you know, like uh, there were definitely some overreactions by fans who were thinking, oh, like, this was doomed, it's terrible. Let's not forget that when Team Canada was announced, it seemed like most people were pretty pleased with the roster. There were a couple of situations where it's like, oh, well, it would have been nice if they had Robert Thomas or Michael Rasmussen or even Formentin, but all those guys didn't make it uh, or didn't play in the tournament, sorry. And 
what else are you going to do about that? So, uh, And I'm also 100% say the fact that the, those guys that were playing in the NHL and in Formentin's case injured, the fact that they didn't make that they didn't play in that tournament is not the reason why Canada did not go far. And because I don't like that excuse whenever it's brought up. Let's not forget that almost every team in the tournament had an NHL player in, that could not play for them. So it, there's not much you can do in that aspect. But, uh, you know, there's still... Like a lot to like for Morgan Frost. Their goaltending was very strong. Their defense was definitely their weak point, which kind of disappointing. When you look to the team in the summer, that seemed to be one of their strong points. They just did not get the job done. But uh, that was a strong Canadian team that just got beat by two flukes. So let's not forget, if they score in that penalty shot in overtime, they're moving on to the semifinals against a Swiss team that I still think they would have been able to beat. And then, of course, like Noah Dobson, if his stick doesn't break, yeah, totally different story, and we're not talking about failing winning this championship, in my opinion. And usually when the World Juniors roll around, the National Predators, they're pretty well represented. Uh, usually they have three or four uh, prospects playing this time. Um, really the only two people that Nashville's familiar with were Joachim Kondalik and, and Ellie Tolvanen. I guess we can we can start with Tolvanen since he was playing in the gold medal game. Um he didn't have any goals, but he, he had, uh, what, was it four assists in, in seven games? Uh, what were your overall impressions of him? Because he, he came up here in Nashville. Uh, he had, what, four games? He had a goal and assist, and everyone kind of went crazy. Oh, he, there's a goal there. That's what they want to see. But the overall consensus is he's still not ready for the NHL. Yeah, Eli Tolvin and I wrote about him last year, and I said that this is a guy who no player in international hockey, no matter the level last year, was as good as Eli Tolvin was. And he basically dominated the Olympics, did everything right. He scored so many goals, and of course, you know, he, he's kind of struggled at points this year. He he hasn't been blowing up the AHL like a lot of people expected, especially after how well he played in the KHL last year. And for him to not score in that tournament is definitely disappointing. However, I did think he played pretty well in the last few games, and he was a big reason why he still ended up winning the tournament. All of a sudden, he was like he had a really slow round rob, and he had a he had a decent. Um, he, even though he only played limited pre-tournament action, I thought he looked okay against Canada. And then he kind of just started the tournament off a little too slow, but then eventually caught his pace up. And of course, he was a big reason why the goal was they tied the game against Canada 46 seconds left because he's the one who did pretty much all the work to get down the ice and get the shot on that. I think he did a really good job of generating the offense when it mattered most. But again, he had zero goals. And of course, um, for Detroit Red Wings fans, a look at Philip Zadina, he didn't score a single goal. So it's almost like a lot of these AHL guys kind of didn't play up to expectations because even Clem Costa, who a lot of fans definitely got on during the medal round, he didn't kind of blow up the tournament or score as much as he did last year. So you can almost say his tournament wasn't as good as it could have been. It just seemed like it was an AHL curse. But, uh, again, Tolvanen, I, I got asked a couple of days ago, is he a bust? And clearly not. He's still pretty good. He's only 19 years old, and he's one of the best prospects in hockey. You just got to give him time. And I think the fact that he's played on so many different teams also in the last three years, like he played in the USHL, played in the KHL, NHL, AHL, and a bunch of different tournaments. I don't know if he's had the time to kind of consistently stay in one spot and kind of gel. I think that's coming almost the issue. I think the best bet for him, send him to the AHL and leave him there for the rest of the year. Call, and don't call him up basically under any circumstances until next season. Get him the chemistry, get his confidence back so he can score kind of what he was able to do in the KHL last year. I mean, how much do you think that, you know, Predators fans have to just have a little bit of patience with this kid? Because, you know, I mean, last year he just bursts onto the scene and tears it up at all levels, World Juniors, Olympics, and, and in the KHL. 
And then once he came over here, it kind of slowed down a little bit and maybe he set back into reality a little bit. But, you know, he, like you said, he's only 19 years old. I mean, how much do you think Predators fans need to just kind of say, hold on a second, he's going to need at least a few years to, to, get to, to get to that elite level? He's not even legal to drink in Nashville or Milwaukee <laughs> yet. I think that's the key thing for people to remember. He's still extremely young. He's easily one of the best players not in the NHL right now. Again, I think if we were to redo the Olympics, he would still be one of the top scorers. And the fact that as a junior player last year, he was basically able to transform Finland into a consistent team in every event he played at. Uh, like again, like it's only a minor tournament, but the Karjala Cup, which was held in Finland, he was the best player in the entire tournament. And we're talking NHL or former NHL star in this tournament. So the fact that he's able to do that was very impressive. But like this is his first full season of pro hockey in North America. It's an adjustment for him. You know, when he played in Europe, he was more used to the bigger ice and everything like that. Now he's back on a smaller ice like he was in the USHL, so he's kind of readjusting. And again, he has moved around quite a bit through team to team to team over the last, basically, you could say 15, 16 months. And I think that alone is kind of like, okay, we got to have some extra patience with him because he is such a talented player. We even saw in some plays, despite him not scoring, he would just basically turn around an entire shift, take the puck, do some great moves. He, yeah, he drives the net. He generates a lot of offensive chances. You're going to love him someday in the NHL. I think maybe when he becomes legal and he's allowed to drink, that could be a different story because that will be a few years into his career. But again, way too early now. He was kind of like a, a steal at his pick and a guy that. Uh, it won't be long until he's an NHL star, in my opinion. There's kind of this, there's two camps here in Nashville. There's some that, that want to see him play right away, and they feel the best way for him to learn is learn on the third or fourth line in the NHL. And there's the other camp that, that kind of like what we saw with Kevin Fiala. They called him up, he was in over his head, they sent him back down to Milwaukee, he finally figured it out. Obviously, it sounds like you're more along the second line, but is there an argument to be made by letting him come up and take his lumps at the NHL level, or do you think that the best the best course of action is the Kevin Fiala route down in the AHL? I think he's had his fun in the NHL. He had two points in four games. I think it's a safe bet to put him back down for a little bit. Again, get some consistency. Let's not keep calling him up and back, up and down, up and down. Let him stay in one spot and get his confidence back. Because uh, I've always been a believer. I know this is kind of a diff, this is kind of a territorial thing, but um, in Ontario, there's minor midget hockey and there's midget hockey. And I've always believed that if you're not going to be a star in the OHL, it's smart to go play midget hockey after you play minor midget because it's an extra year where you can go out there and be one of the best goal scorers in the league, get your confidence back, and learn how to be a better player, even though the competition is not that stuff. He's a talented player. He doesn't need to be playing the best on best every night. He needs to be able to just grow as a player, continue getting scoring chances. Because if, if he's playing limited minutes in a game, is he really going to be getting any better than if he was in the AHL and getting five or six shots every single game, playing a much more pivotal role, playing power play, maybe even penalty kill, and getting every opportunity he can? More ice time matters. And again, he's a guy that I think is no question going to be a really good player in the NHL. You don't need to rush him. He's still only 19. And you know what? The 12 points of 24 games of an NHL rookie isn't that bad. It's just everyone's expecting more of him. And I think if you get given the rest of the season to kind of show what he could do, and he'll be a top player in the NHL by the end of the season, it just takes time. 
The other Preds prospect that played at the World Juniors, Joshim Kondalik, for the Czechs, and he had a goal and an assist in five games in the tournament, and he's been doing pretty well at UConn this year. their second leading scorer. Do you see anything from him that stood out during the tournament? I know that the, the Czechs didn't have the best tournament necessarily, but he seemed to be able to, to play pretty well throughout it. Put it this way, the Czechs had a terrible tournament. They, that was a team that should have been contending for a medal near the end, and they just could not score. None of their key players scored. But Connolly did score probably the coolest goal I've ever seen in the World Juniors, where he took a slap shot, or I believe a wrist shot, sorry, from the point off of his face and went in the net. And that was a terrible game for the, the Czech Republic, where they ended up losing 2-1 in a game where all three goals were on the Czech Republic power play, but two of them resulted in shorthanded goals for Russia. Um, I think he was definitely one of the better players for the the Czechs. I had not watched him play in about two years, but he seemed to grow a lot better defensively. And uh, Last time I saw him play, he had a very strong under-18 performance. He had six points. He showed that he could be a big power play contributor. But I think we saw a bit more versatility out of him, a bit more... Um, like a bit more of a rounded game, and he was physical. Obviously, he's six foot seven. He should be physical, but he could skate very well for a guy his size. He could shoot the puck very well. Um, he's got a lot of strength. Obviously, um, a lot to like about his game. He's more of a pro- uh, project type guy, and that's to be expected from a player that uh, plays NCAA. You're not going to rush him. But I, I thought, you know, he was one of the Czech Republic's most consistent players in a tournament where their defense, uh, specifically Philip Prawl was pretty disappointing because, again, that team, they, there was a lot of hope, a lot of people thinking this could be the best Czech team in two decades, and they completely fell flat. And a lot of that was because their top three players of uh, Martin Kraut, Martin Neches, and Philip Zadina could not do anything offensively. But I thought, um, when you look at Conduit, I thought he, he got a lot of shots in net. He did a lot of things right, not many things wrong. And again, was just one of the more consistent players. He doesn't need to be flashy to be good. He's a really good shutdown guy. You can almost see a little bit of Hal Gill in him, um, which, depending on who you are, is a good or a bad thing. But I think that in this case, it's a good thing. Um, he was very good defensively in his own zone. And again, I like the fact that he's, like a guy that's six foot seven, it's really hard to kind of, he, he's a hard guy to judge because. The fact that he is a good skater is a good sign because a guy like him is huge and he's definitely heavier. But he always he's very good in his own zone. I think that's a really important thing to kind of watch. And a two-way center that's that big, and then you can also throw in front of the net and kind of just be like, oops, I'm blocking uh, your way as a goalie. Um, especially with Nashville, you know, look at all the tall goalies they have. Um, but, uh, like, looking at other teams and putting him in front of the net, that's a good thing. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm not... <laughs> that, I, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that one. Yeah, the reason I asked that was because, like you said, he did play a little bit of defense in the tournament. We saw at, at BU with, with David Ferentz, he's a natural defenseman, and they tried him out as a forward during the season. And it seems like the Predators aren't, they're, they're not concerned with locking someone into a position. They're willing to try someone out at another position. And that's what kind of you know piqued my interest about Condoleek is the fact that he is so big, and you kind of compare him to Hal Gill there. Yeah, like that's a lot of least on me, the, the size and the, the physical abilities of him, because if he can skate better, that's a good thing, that's a good sign. Uh, but there's also not a whole lot of six foot, six, six foot, seven forwards to kind of compare him to, at least at this point. He looks almost better as a defenseman, and I think that's kind of why I liked him when he played in his own zone. He just seemed to do a better job there. 
And outside of the World Juniors last month, the Spangler Cup also took place, and the Predators had Dante Fabro over there, their prospect defenseman from BU. And, you know, in the next couple of months, he's going to have a pretty important decision to make, and the Predators are going to have an important decision to make. I mean, in your opinion, I mean, I, I, obviously with the Spangler Cup, it's a little bit more limited viewing, but where do you see him fitting in if he does decide to go to the Predators? And, you know, is he ready? Because the Predators for, have said, you know, they think he's ready. They they even wanted him potentially into the start of the season this year, but he wanted to go back. I mean, how ready do you think he is to make that jump and to be able to play some NHL minutes? Uh, yeah, I, I got to watch him play a lot during his junior A days. And the one thing that kind of struck me was he reminds me a lot of Ryan Ellis, except control a couple bigger hits. Um, I'm a big Ryan Ellis fan. I think that's a pretty good projection for him. And we weren't really sure kind of what to expect out of Fabro going to this tournament because we know he's fast, but he doesn't have as much experience as the rest of the D core uh, on the bigger ice, which does matter. And again, he has never really played against pros. So this was a big challenge for him. And I thought he looked great. And uh, I would love to see him back at the Spangler Cup, which if you look at his uh, last couple of uh, Decembers, He's played the World Junior A Challenge twice, the World Juniors twice, and now the Spangler Cups. It, it just means he's got to play one more Spangler Cup tournament, but I would not rush him. He's another good guy who can generate a lot of offense from the point, a lot of skill, a great skater, but I don't think putting him up, like unless the, the Preds make a trade in the near future, I don't see a need for him any time in the next year or two. Let him develop. He's a very talented player, a very possible uh, trade prospect in the next couple of years. Uh, he was easily Canada's best defenseman throughout the tournament. There was a lot of eyes on Kevin Bieksa coming in, the, coming in because he was the guy with the most NHL experience, hadn't played. People were excited to see what he would do. And I'd say for the most part, he was a giant disappointment. But when you look at Fabro, he was playing with Kyle Quincy, and I thought that was a really good defensive pairing. We saw, actually, at one point, Dante Fabro was the only player in the tournament with two goals, which was pretty impressive, uh, considering he was he one of the youngest players in the tournament and had some of the least amount of pro experience, basically zero. Um, he's played against some talented players in the past. We know what he's capable of, but I think that tournament kind of set him above any other performance I've seen him play because, again, this was the best competition to play against. And he looked very good. Uh, it was a bummer for Team Canada losing in the shootout to Cabo uh, Kiopio, which is kind of funny because then a few days later, Canada lost to the Finns in overtime, meaning Canada got eliminated by two Finnish teams in a week. But uh, overall, very impressed with him. I just don't think he's ready right away. I think you want to definitely kind of work on his like his skating is good but you want to work a bit more on his defensive coverage and the fact is I don't think you would want to throw him as a fifth or sixth defenseman anytime soon he's got a lot of talent where when he's ready he'll jump into a top four in the NHL whether it's with Nashville or if they end up trading him I don't know yet yeah, the thing with Fabro that, that kind of scares everyone here is is I I hate even saying the name Jimmy VC, but everyone's worried that that he's going to go that route, wait his four years, and sign with another team. If you're, and it's it's you know hard to predict what any NHL general manager would do. If you're David Poyle, though, do you let that creep in your mind, knowing that what VC did, and you try to trade Fabro and get something for him, or do you think Fabro's you know he's a straight up kid and he's not he's not going to do you dirty, kind of like VC did. That's that's always a tough one to kind of decipher at this point. Um, right now, the way I look at it is again, he's a lot of he's got a lot of skill, 
a Nashville defensive core, as it seems like it's been for the last decade, is going to be really tough for him to crack. Which then, you know, he's got a lot of talent. He's going to be a very good NHL player someday. It, it may not hurt to look at the trade opportunities. Because when you look at the fact that you got Subban and Yossi and Ekholm and Ellis already on the team, and for those guys all to be on the team until at least 2021, where, again, we're not going to see Roman Yossi leave the team likely, um, there may not be room for him. And when, when you look at the fact that they, of course, their defense is good, their goaltending is looking really really good in the long run, it may not hurt to use him as a trade bait. And maybe there's a team out there who thinks he's ready next season, and that could be a valuable thing. But um, I think he still has time. He's still very young. He's still only 20 years old. It's I don't know him personally, so I can't judge his character and whether or not he would actually decide to think, oh, you know, I may go sign somewhere else. But it's definitely worth looking at a potential trade option for sure. And lastly, before we let you go, I mean, we're looking at the Preds prospect pool as a whole, there's not a lot to be had there just in ter- just because they've been moving a lot of those draft picks and moving prospects for pieces that are helping them to win now. So, I mean, when you look at the Preds prospect pool, what do you kind of think overall? And, you know, should Predators fans be concerned and should they think that, you know, it might be time to start really restocking that, you know, e- even though the team seems to be ready to contend for at least the next few years? Well, I would I would kind of argue that um, outside of the defensive core, they don't have a whole lot of great trades. Um, you know, there's always the question. Uh, Pecorine and Yusiceros are both going to be free agents for 2021-2022, where one of them have to go. And in that case, you'd almost think that Renee would have to be the guy because as good as he's been, he's older. His career is not going to last much longer. And Yusiceros is looking like the definite goaltender of the future. So, you know what? The fact that they, I'm not convinced they have a great goaltending prospect either. Um, and they're offensive guys. Like, I'd have to say, what, Freddie Goudreau is one of the better prospects right now. And I'm not convinced on what he can do. So, you're relying a lot, at least currently, on your top two prospects being um, Tolvanen and Fabro. So, you know what? I, I think in terms of prospect groups, Nashville definitely needs to work on that a bit. But right now, I think uh, I picked them to be in the Stanley Cup Finals the last three years. I still think they're a serious contender coming up for the next few years. So you got to wonder, you don't want to keep getting to the point where you're always really good and then you go into a little bit of a drought and you don't have any prospects to kind of fill up your roster like Detroit. It's kind of sad to kind of see how they went from being so good to a team that basically could not restock their, their draft picks because they can't make in the playoffs. So that's what could make the Fabro potential trade interesting because he will bring in a lot. He could bring in a very good forward in a first or second pick, which could really help. And I'm not totally convinced on their prospect pool right now. Uh, of course, Shell Tolvan is a top prospect, no question about it. Fabro, another great defensive prospect. It is. I think you may have to trade Fabro to get something else because as long as the team's good, they're not going to be able to continue to stock up at the draft like they need to. All right, Stephen Ellis from World Hockey Magazine has been our guest. Stephen, appreciate you taking the time to join us and great stuff. And we're, we're excited that we got to get you on here and talk about the World Juniors. Yes, thank you very much. All right, we'll talk to you later. All right, that was Stephen Ellis from World Hockey Magazine. Um, some things that kind of want to touch on now, just between you and I, um, the Preds prospect pool as a whole, like he said, it's it's one of those questions. It's, it's not going to go away until the end of this year when when Fabro ultimately makes a decision. But 
we talk about it all the time, and it's it, Predators fans always talk about, do you trade Dante Fabro? Because Ellie Tolvin's not going anywhere. He is, outside of Philip Forsberg, he's the best offensive prospect this franchise has ever had. You can go and find another defense. Not saying that Fabro's, you know, he's a he's a scrub or anything, but David Poyle could easily flip him and get something back. Do you do you take that and trade like you said to restock the pipeline and get that going, or do you kind of wait it out? And we like we talked about earlier with Seattle, with the with the expansion draft coming, do you potentially trade a Matias Eklund, bring back a, a forward, and then you plug Fabro onto the top four? It's an interesting conundrum, and there's a number of ways that I think they can go about it. It's it's all kind of depends on how they want to approach it. And also, it really also depends on who's available. You know, if if Matthias Ekholm is the guy you want to trade, then you have to look at, okay, is there anybody that you can pry away from another team that it would be worth trading this guy? Because right now, I, I you know, you hear guys like Wayne Simmons, Jeff Carter on the, on the market, and that, you know, the Predators could potentially have interest in. None of those guys are worth trading Matthias Ekholm for. It, okay. It's just not true. If you're trading Matthias Ekholm, who is an elite defenseman on one of the greatest team-friendly contracts in the NHL right now for a defenseman, you're going to be trading for somebody great. I mean, I'm talking Artemi Panarin levels of great, at least. So, you know, if you want to go that route and give yourself a really strong guy on the forward unit to win right now, fine, you do that. If you're thinking, okay, time to kind of reset the pipeline a little bit and maybe get a, a pretty decent piece for the team right now, maybe that's why you trade Fabro. Whereas you know Fabro could haul in a guy like Simmons or potentially Carter. I don't think that's, I don't think Carter would be, would be the right move if that's what it comes to it. Yeah, but not at all. I think it, uh, <clears throat> you can get a good haul plus prospects plus picks for Fabro because Fabro is such a good prospect that could be ready within the next calendar year or so so i think you know it's all about how you want to approach it and also the market will dictate how they want to do that because if no one is available that will meet the standard of a, a matthias ekholm trade then you don't do it and the wayne simmons thing is, is interesting because he's he's averaged over 20 what 24 goals the last five years he had th- over 30 and two of them he had 28 and 29 and two of those other years he's a he's a legit 30 goal 60 point player every year he's only 30 not only is, is he good offensively, but he's, he's a gritty, he's a tough guy, kind of like if Zach Ronaldo could actually score, that's what he would be. Um, I think he's, he's an interesting, um, do, you, do you trade Fabro for someone like that, given that Fabro's still very young and, and obviously Simmons is 30, but Simmons is someone who could come in right now, you could plug in on the second line, the third line if you had to, but I think he's a, he's a fairly, fairly good second line player. You can move Fiala or Craig Smith down to, the, down to that third line, and that would help out now, and that would also help out in, in the... In the playoff run, like you said earlier, I don't think Jeff Carter is the way to go. But it's one of those things that's interesting because if you look, do you do you hold out and and maybe Fabro becomes Shea Weber or maybe he becomes Jonathan Blum? You don't know. Looking at the season he's having now at BU, he's their leading scorer. He's got three goals and thirteen points, and he's ahead of legit NCAA scores like Bobo Carpenter, uh, Shane Bowers, Chad Chris, um, Jake Wise, like there's a lot of players on his team, especially Bowers and, and Chris, you would think would, would be ahead of Fabro scoring, but he's he got named the co-captain this year and he's he's really developing, so he's making it really hard where if he doesn't want to sign here, or if David Poyle thinks that he might not sign it, he's making it really hard for them to want to trade him. Yeah, and, and it, it 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 pains the would pain the Predators to make that move, like you said, because Fabro is so good, and he's been the guy in their system for a while that you know they're waiting to to bring in. 
But the reality is that they have a great core of defensemen that are a lot that, you know, once Roman Yossi gets a good deal, is locked up for the time being on pretty good contracts. They're, and, you know, Yossi obviously is going to warrant a payday once, he, once his deal is up. But, you know, they've, they've got a lot of really strong pieces in there now that it would just be tough for them to, to, to break that up. And, you know, and, you know you could, one could say, you know, all right, we'll bring in, we'll sign Favreau anyways, throw him in on the bottom six. And obviously he would contribute well there, but that might, that might not be the best thing for him. And he might not even, might even want that. And then you end up in another Jimmy VC type situation. So in, in a way, it's a good problem to have because it's essentially saying you have too many of a good thing. And, it, and no matter what, the way, you can, the way Poyle could play it is you can get some assets in return. The worst thing that could happen is you just let Favreau walk for nothing and then suddenly you're, you're, the cupboard's bare again. Yeah. And, and the other thing that, that makes it difficult is he's, he's your... I don't want to say he's your second best prospect. I would say him and Tolvanen are 1A and 1B. Tolvanen with a slight edge. But if you do get rid of, of Favreau... Your only defensive prospects that you really have that the fan base can be really be excited about in the next two or three years would be Frederick Allard and and Alex Carrier, and it feels like for the last three or four years now we've been waiting for Carrier to come up and waiting for Carrier, waiting for Carrier, and he's still not in the NHL. And you would have thought with the bottom pairing struggling with Yannick Weber being out and Boteto and Irwin, they're they're a mess, and then having to plug Dan Hamus on the first line with with Yossi and the defense has struggled, and, and if Alex Carrier still hasn't gotten called up. When they needed a spark at that at that uh, point in time, you just wonder: Is there something wrong with him? Or did they, are they not sold on him? Frederick Allard, he is fourth on, on the Admirals in scoring. Um, Matt Donovan is third. He's also a defenseman, but Matt Donovan's twenty eight, about to be twenty nine. He's not really considered a prospect. He would he would be a death piece if they did bring him up. But other than than Fabro, and I think I think the the novelty for Alex Carey is kind of wearing off. And aside from Frederick Allard, you don't really have any defensive prospects to be excited about. And for a team like Nashville with Shea Weber and Ryan Suter and Roman Yossi and everyone, that's it's almost strange for them not to have two or three guys that they, they have stashed in the AHL to bring up that are, you know, bona fide prospects. Yeah, that's the real thing that's that's driving what's going on right now in Nashville is it's just that they don't have a lot of players to come up after this. But then again, you know, people get freaked out about, you know, oh, the Predators, the cupboard with the prospects is pretty bare. They don't have anybody that's going to come up and, and say, all right, what if they did? Who, where are they going to play? This team is so deep at the NHL level right now with talent that is young, that is talented, playing in a position that they are comfortable in. You know, you don't have top-line players that really don't belong on the top line. You know, the Predators' top line, I think most NHL teams, I think you know, maybe 28 out of 31 NHL teams would kill to have a top line like that. And you have a lot of really strong talent. And so, you know, this is what happens with these teams is that when you start, when you're like right at the, at the cusp of that win-now mode, when you're right in the thick of it, this is kind of what happens. I think the Predators have learned from what happened last year with their, with their draft picks is that they, and that they had almost none of them that this year is going to be a little bit different, that they'll have some draft picks and they'll have first, second, third, fourth rounders to be able to pick from and to be able to build up the pipeline again. Because I think having a full draft again will be will definitely be the way to go with this. Yeah, and it's it's something that, that a lot of teams go through whenever whenever you're in win-now mode and you're, you're really good is usually your farm system isn't that great because you're trading them off to get some players. I mean, the Chicago Blackhawks went through it um, the Pittsburgh Penguins, to to a degree, they they had a little bit more help down the farm system than uh, Chicago does or did. But 
I mean, if you just if you look at it, the Predators. If you trade Fabro, the only prospect I really see anyone getting excited about is Tolvanen. And with the the pressure they're putting on him to get to the NHL, it's almost kind of like a lose lose situation. And then you look at the defense. I mean, what's going on with Alex Carey? Is he going to get called up? Is is Frederick Lard going to pass him? And then with the trade deadline coming up, David Poyle, you know, he's traded his first round pick quite a few times. Do they keep that and try to get one of the premier players in, in the middle of the back of the first round? Or do you trade it off again because you assume that whoever you're bringing in is going to be better than who you could take with that first round pick? It's 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 interesting to look at when you're when you're looking at this team when they're in win-now mode compared to we're used to them the last couple of years having really good prospects. The, the one thing that, you know, kind of stems the tide of all of this a little bit in terms of what David Poyle has done is he has been excellent at finding bargain bin players. He has been absolutely outstanding at that time and time again. I would even I would throw Freddie Goudreau in that category. He was an undrafted guy, just kind of got his shot in Milwaukee. I think that's the hope of Condoleezza. Yeah, too. yeah. And now suddenly he's going to be he's you know becoming a more regular force on this team. And the other guy, Rocco Grimaldi, just finding him kind of out of nowhere, a minor deal this this off season, and suddenly he has been absolutely incredible for the Predators so far. And I think he's it's going to be really tough once guys like Turris come back and, and Salamaki because I think Grimaldi's just been electric no matter what he's done. So the good thing for the Predators is that they're, you know, they're 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 doing well right now on the ice and on in the NHL level and they're also stemming the tide of this of this kind of lack of prospects with a lot of bargain bin deals. And the last thing I kinda of wanna wanna talk about it was it's it's a minor move, but if you're a, if you're a very big follower of, of the Admirals and, and all things Predators prospect related, uh, the Preds they, they cut Miroslav Svoboda. Um, he spent the entire year, well, most of the year, with uh, the Gladiators and the Atlanta Gladiators in the ECHL. Um, his numbers weren't bad. He had a 3.14 goals against average and a 9.10 save percentage. Um, and we kind of talked about this off-air with, with Gover, too. Think, we just think the main problem is that he legitimately thought he was going to be competing for a spot in Milwaukee. And with McCollum and Grosnick there, he never got that shot. He's younger than both of them. I think he just assumed that he was going to get that shot. And then he, being in the ECHL, I think he was just unhappy, and he would rather go over to uh, the Czech leagues or he would rather go over to the KHL and try to get a starting job there. Um, and we, we've talked about this before. It's, they and, and Steven even touched on this. They don't have a legit goalie prospect. The closest thing they have is Tomas Vomachka, who's at UConn. Um, and the reason that we, we think that they're not too concerned with the AHL goalie spot is because they're reserving that for Vomachka whenever he decides he wants to, to come over and play. But Svoboda, I mean, he was, I think he was 23, 24. He was young enough to where it's still, it's it's kind of surprising, especially given the Predators' track record with goalies in the last couple of years. Yeah, it, it's a tough situation. I think it just represents, you know, the kind of, it's a, it's a, it's a cluster of of goalies that are in that position right now. And he just saw that he wasn't going to get the time and, you know, I mean, who knows what he what he's been thinking about that? But you know, I, it seems like you know he wasn't getting the time that he wanted, so he wanted to pursue opportunities elsewhere. And you know, more power to him. He was pretty good in development camp. I think we saw. I mean, Vomashka kind of stole yeah. the show more or less just because of his personality and the way he played out there. But you know, Svoboda was good, and you know, best of luck to wherever he goes. And I think the Predators, more or less, right now, I mean, Vomashka is going to kind of be maybe the next guy, maybe even you know a backup at some point whenever Pecorino decides to hang him up, which at this point is at least for not, not for the next two to three years. Yeah, the man might win another Vezina again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, seriously. But right now, I think the Predators, you know, in terms of the goalie pipeline, 
are set. They basically don't need another starter for about another 10, 10 years or so if all if all goes according to plan because you know Saros is super young and he's ready to take that take on the starting role once Rene decides to hang him up and then he's got a solid ten year ten to fifteen year career if he maintains his health and maintains that same level. So I think you know maybe it, within the next two to three drafts you start thinking about okay who's going to be the next next guy maybe you take him if he's young enough and try to find him in there i mean goaltending prospects don't grow on trees remember pecorino was drafted in a round that doesn't even exist anymore so i I wouldn't be too concerned about the goaltending pipeline just yet considering that they've still got at least another few good years with pecorino and then an entire you know decade plus and if all goes according to plan with UC Saros. Yeah, and, that, and that's what's tricky about goaltender because you can you can only have two on a roster during a season. If you go out and you draft a Sidney Crosby or Connor McDavid, you don't go stop looking for the next Sidney Crosby or Connor McDavid. You keep looking because you can throw three or four centers out there in a game. Say, the same thing with the, with defense. If you find a Shea Weber, you don't go stop looking for the next Shea Weber. You keep looking. With goalie, if you have a guy that's going to be your starter for 10 to 15 years, you don't necessarily need to draft someone who's similar like that because he's going to be wasting away as a backup or he's going to be um, in the AHL. So it's, it's kind of one of those things where they the Preds feel like UC's going to be their, their starter for the next 10 to 12 years. Vomachka's kind of working his way into the backup, so they're not really too concerned about, about goaltender because they're, they're pretty well set there unless something happens with Vomachka or you know he gets injured or he decides he doesn't want to play hockey anymore or anything like that. But you can always go out and find depth um, for your AHL team as well. Um, and the thing that, that stuck out about, like you said, Svoboda was really good at development camp. I feel like at development camp, he was the better goalie, but Vomachka stood out more because, like you said, his personality and Vomachka flashed more, we'll call it Pecorine-ness, than, than, than he did. Vomachka had more flashes of, of greatness than Svoboda did. So I think that kind of played into it a little bit, too. He's you know kind of like talking to Yakov Trenin. Obviously, the, the language difference and not being able to understand them played a part in it, too. But their personality, like, they just have very stone-cold personalities. And I think that's kind of, you know, that might have played a little bit into letting them go, too. Whereas you have Vomachka, someone you think is really good. If you wanted to leave, you try and talk him into it because he's more of a likable guy. With Svoboda, it's like, okay, you're not happy. We'll let you go. Right, right. And and for a player like that, I mean, it's his it's his decision. And he, you know, felt that he could have better opportunities elsewhere going back to Europe. So, I mean, more power to him. I mean, best of luck. But the Predators, basically, the moral of the story is that they're still doing just fine at yeah. the, uh, in the goalie level. They're, the Predators will be fine pretty much all across the board if they restock the, the you know the pipeline this year and next year, which I think they will. David Poyle didn't get to the, be the winningest GM in, in NHL history without knowing what he's doing. So, so I, think, I think he'll be just fine. But we want to say thank you to Stephen Ellis for joining us. Um, he had a lot of great knowledge about the World Junior Championships. And we always love bringing in people that actually firsthand got to watch stuff and break it down. They bring a perspective that we don't get to watch just from watching on TV. Um, but anyway, this has been the Road to Nashville podcast, our second episode. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at Penalty Box Radio, at Cutler Klein, at MPatrickG5. And thanks for listening.